Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc is now in the possession of the Army. Too many others know what's happening out there, and no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. About time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Across the gulf of space, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our planet with envious eyes. Each of us, when separated, is always looking for our other half. And the desire and the pursuit of the whole is called love. Heart perception will change everything. Freedom is the privilege to be right. Freedom from the disasters of our mistakes.
broadcasting from the Sonoran Desert. I'm your host, Ryan Gable, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings Radio. If you'd like to contact the show, you can email rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. You can also find us on social media, Twitter and Facebook, and anywhere you listen to radio shows or podcasts, you can find our Monday through Friday show to download and listen for free. Of course, many of you who are already subscribers to the show, you can keep your subscription as we move the archive and all of that over to Aftermath Media. So you'll get Clyde's shows and my shows if you're a premium subscriber, or you can just simply sign up to The Secret Teachings month by month. All of that is in transition at the moment. If you go to aftermath.media, you can check out the subscriptions there. Again, if you have any questions about that or anything else, I gave you the emails. Please don't hesitate to message us here on the show. I cover and uh, deal with all the specifics of the behind the scenes, so you'll be talking to me directly. I know some people prefer that, but I don't always have all the answers, so I'll try to get your email over to the appropriate party if I don't have the answer. Coming up in about, what is it, 11, 12 weeks, about three months, is the Contact in the Desert Conference. And we are doing our annual fundraiser for that. We're only trying to raise $500, and we have about three months to do it. Once we hit that mark, we end the fundraiser. Try to be as transparent as possible here on The Secret Teachings. So $500, we're doing autographed show logos, your choice of the logo. I have these uh, printed out in a, uh, a high quality with the, the ink and the paper, and then we're going to put them in a, in a kind of like, um, I guess, like a, like a picture type frame. Uh, and then we're going to have autographed books, and then we've got some old stuff here from the studio, still in really great shape, nothing wrong with it, but stuff I'm getting rid of uh, that we've used for the show. So it's got a lot of energy in it. And if you're interested in those items as well, check out our post on Facebook. We have those offered to you if you donate a little bit for us to attend Contact in the Desert. Again, email us if you have any questions about that. So tonight on the show, we're going to take a long, long walk away from everything we've discussed so far this week. Tonight, no UFOs. Tonight, no censorship. Tonight, more so, I guess you could say, ancient history, but really how ancient is the question? If you look off of the coast of Chile, west of Chile, like way west, there's a little tiny island, tiny, relatively speaking. A lot of you probably know this island as Easter Island, otherwise known as Rapa Nui, and you spell that R-A-P-A-N-U-I. Now, many, many years ago, I think this was like in 2010 or 2011, the first interview I ever conducted, I've told this story before, the first interview I ever conducted was a lady named Shirley Andrews. And Shirley Andrews wrote a book about Atlantis, and she wrote a book about Lemuria. And to this day, I have not owned a copy of those books. At the time, I had not read those books And uh, I finally found a copy at a used bookstore the other day, so I purchased it, and I've been flipping through it, and I guess you could call it a synchronicity, but as I'm flipping through the book, I remember 
very vividly what Shirley Andrews had told us on the show. And I didn't know a lot about Easter Island or really anything for that matter at the time. And she had told us about, you know, Easter Island is called Rapa Nui. I didn't know it was called Rapa Nui at the time. This was like over a decade ago. Uh, and I was a very young guy. And she said that the indigenous language there, historians believe, was called Rongo Rongo. And that Christian missionaries had destroyed it when they, when they visited the island. And uh, these big heads, most of you know the big Easter Island heads. And they're called Moai. And she had told us that some of these, you know, heads uh, might potentially have bodies, uh, which uh, they've they've been doing excavations on these things since like 1914. One of the the, the major excavations that began uh, sometime it was around 2009 by researchers from UCLA working with the Chilean government, and. Since then, uh, Easter Island has been in the news here or there for incredible finds that have been made on the island about the Moai or maybe just generally about the culture uh, in 2017, about the bodies of these large statues. Uh, you've seen them probably a million times in ancient aliens. And of course, uh, some of them have hats. Some of them have, uh, well, some of them are still connected to the, to the rock that they were cut out of as if the process was halted suddenly or someone in the past didn't get around to finishing the, the cutting before they left or before they died or whatever the case is. And now another Easter Island statue has actually been uh, uncovered, which was submerged for, they, they estimate hundreds of years. They've just uncovered that. We're going to talk about that tonight. So we interviewed Shirley Andrews. We talked about this many, 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 many years ago. The first big interview I did so it's kind of close to my heart here for the show. And uh, I learned a lot on that interview. And it was fascinating to me because, like most of you, if you look at Easter Island, you think, okay, wait a minute. This, this thing is in the middle you know, of the, of the South Pacific. Uh, it's probably like a third of the way to New Zealand. Uh, I mean, you go from Chile. It's very directly west from central Chile. Or maybe just north it's north of of central chile uh it's way far west and then you just if you go further west or further southwest you get to new zealand it's probably like 30 a third of the way 30 percent to new zealand so it's way out in the ocean um not something that you're going to go to for a holiday for a vacation got to have a little bit of money probably to go there maybe even some connections depending on the time of year so it's very remote now if you've read the writings of people like Graham Hancock, or if you've read, um, well, we've had uh, Jared Murphy on the show before. Uh, we've talked to a lot of uh, researchers and scientists and authors, et cetera, over the years. A lot of people believe, and there is a substantial amount of evidence to support this, that obviously due to the fact that the ice caps, uh, which were in large part over North America, uh, Canada, lar large parts of Europe, once those giant ice caps or ice sheets began melting at the end of the last LGM, the last glacial maximum, the ocean levels rose by hundreds of feet. And when that happened, obviously a lot of low-lying land, and it's different all over the world depending on you know where, where you're looking, but a lot of low-lying land disappeared, it vanished. And of course, that low-lying land from, let's say, 10, 15,000 years ago plus 
plus, give or take a few thousand years, that is prime real estate as it is today for human development, for human settlements. So a lot of human history, theoretically and, and, and logically, I think it's a practical and reasonable thing to assume this, is probably underwater. Uh, whether you're looking off the coast of Florida, at the Bahamas area, or if you're looking across the ocean, across the world from the United States, and you're looking over to Sri Lanka, uh, or if you're looking over to Australia and the Papua New Guinea area, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, uh, parts of Japan, they probably didn't suffer as much as some other, other places did. Um, and of course, Easter Island, there was probably a much larger piece of land there, and it is now submerged underwater. The same thing with, um, what do they call it, Doggerland. Uh, in, uh, well, what we would call the UK today, around the U United Kingdom and Ireland and, and all that area. So there's a lot, of, a lot of land that has been submerged, not because of climate change that has been orchestrated by man, but because of natural events. And this perhaps could lead to, uh, whether it's confirmation of or it's the foundation of, all these incredible flood stories that we have all over the world, flood stories from native indigenous people to uh, more probably what we would call maybe more well-known cultures. I mean, everybody has a flood story to some extent, and, and it, it could be that these are all talking about the same historical event rather than just crazy mythologies that aren't based in reality, which as we know, you know, mythology is really scientific observation and mythology is partly historical record in the same way that, you know, the Bible or even the Quran. The Quran is in some ways very scientific, the way that it describes the creation and the formation of the world and man. Maybe if you're a Christian, you you think it's a, a book of a book of evil. But if if you read the Quran, which I've I've read at least the introductory part of the Quran. Uh, it's very scientific, and in the same way, the Bible, in a way, is kind of scientific. The Bible describes things uh, of of a very ancient, very very ancient, uh, extremely ancient origin. Not just you know the the Adam and Eve story, but the beginning of everything, the creation of the world, etc. And uh, it's it's really strange if you look at origin stories. I think some that get overlooked more than others. Um, are the origins in, in, in the, the Japanese history. That These are incredible. And in large part because a lot of them didn't come to light until recent times. You know, there's a lot of arguments on what exactly is the real or true history uh, of the Japanese islands and of the Japanese people. But if you go back far enough, uh, the debate is really about some of these other texts that have been found uh, and, and published and, and discussed and, and, and looked at. Uh, there's so many of them. Uh, the Kujiki 72 is one of them. Uh, the, I think it's called Hatsuma Sutaye, which is supposedly a record of ancient, ancient civilization written in a kind of like a forgotten language. There's the Kata Kamuna documents, and they're sort of sort of like a historical record. There's the Taka Noichi documents, and they go, 
I, I go into history, I guess what we would call a golden age. So uh, more like mythology, but like to a time that is incomprehensible. I mean, and, and what all, whether these documents are all kosher, whether they're all real, rather whether they're all legit, or if you want to look at what would be referred to as the official records of ancient Japan, the Kojiki or the Nihon Shoki, these documents uh, are all kind of in in conflict with one another. And what is considered acceptable history or acceptable myth might actually be something that more so just re- has, has reinforced the imperial lineages, which is really what those, those latter books, those latter texts are about. And uh, they're more so politically motivated than historically motivated. And some of the other historical books that have sort of been forgotten or have come to light in recent times, if they're not forgeries, they might actually be the real history. But the point is, when you look at that ancient Japanese history, it is taking us back to a time that in a mythology book, let's say you read Edith Hamilton's book, Mythology, and she talks about the Golden Ages, the different ages, the Bronze Age, and all these ages of man, uh, or Blavatsky's, the different root races, we're talking about not ancient history. We're talking about ancient history to ancient history. I mean, in the same way that if you look at um, South America, and you look, I guess you could probably look anywhere, but Bolivia is a really great example. And you look at uh, places like Tiwanaku. And Tiwanaku is this incredible, incredible archaeological site. And at Tiwanaku, you have these, there, there's so much there, but you have this, this stella, this stone slab with a bearded, head or bearded figure on it. And you actually have several of these. One of them is reportedly Veracocha, who is the creator god or creator deity in South America, Quetzalcoatl in Central America, Osiris in Africa, and it's the same story everywhere around the world. Also at Tiwanaku is the, uh, there's another structure part of Tiwanaku called Kalasa Saya. Kalasa Saya, I think is how you pronounce it. And there you find similar kinds of statues or idols or stone slabs. And these statues slash stone slabs, stellas, are idols that are holding objects in their hands. And if you look at these things, you realize this is the same exact kind of design that is in ancient Sumer. Uh, It's the same kind of design that you find all over the world. Uh, the, the winged figures, the Apkala or Apkalu, were supposedly a group of emissaries sent by a creator god and entrusted with bringing civilization to man after the great deluge. They hold in their hands these little tiny baggies and uh, people, you know, scientists, uh, uh, historians, archaeologists have all sorts of different opinions on what these little bags represent. But from South and Central America to Mesopotamia, there are images of these beings holding these bags. Uh, the word for the bag means container. It's bandudu. And everywhere you look in the world, you find these kinds of creatures, or you find these kinds of deities. They all have usually either European features. Um, they look white, have beards, which is really strange in the regions that they these things were found. Or they look almost bird-like or men with the heads of birds. Some of them sort of look like Horus from Egypt. 
Uh, some of them uh, look fish-like, which is the fish god of the Philistines, Oanus. So again, everywhere you look, you find the, the, the fish and the birds and, you know, with the scales and the, this reptil, uh, reptilian or reptile sort of look to them, you know, they're kind of like serpents, which is what Quetzalcoatl was known as the plumbed serpent. And again, everywhere you look in the world, you find these things, whether they're holding these bags or it's the, the, the type of design of the, of the idol or the stella, the stone slab uh, that's in Bolivia, or it's in, for example, if you look at Gobek, Gobekli Tepe, I mean, my God, the, they've only excavated about, what, 10 to 15% of that. And some of the central pillars of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey have the same kind of, let's call it design, where these statues sort of have the arms that are wrapped around the front. If you just look these statues up, look up Gobekli Tepe, Turkey, uh, central pillars, and you'll see the statues with these hands that come around the front. Uh, they're also very similar to the statue of the Urfa man, which was found, I guess, in the same region of Turkey. It's like it's south or southeastern Turkey. They found Urfa man. That's U-R-F-A. But the, the point is, when you take all this into consideration, you know, it would make more sense to find this in populated areas like uh, Mesopotamia or Africa, uh, even South America. But to find these kinds of things on Easter Island, when you look at the Moai, they have the exact same hand position. It comes around the front almost like almost like a Buddha belly, if you will, where they're kind of almost like they're holding the belly or they have their hands down. Maybe you could argue in a meditative position uh, or in sort of a uh, you know professional or military-like stance. But they have their hands right up there on the front. I mean, th this is fat. Literally, you could not really get further than Easter Island and Gobekli Tepe, Turkey. And you find this same kind of statues holding or idols holding their hands in the same exact way. You find creatures or deities, whether they're bird, fish, snake, or European looking at least. I don't know if they're actually Europeans, but European looking. And they're all either holding bags or they're depicted as bringing civilization in, in some capacity to the people of whatever region these statues are found in. That is an incredible piece of history that, you know, maybe in the 90s and the early 2000s, uh, maybe in the Art Bell era, more and more people were aware of this uh, in the, the Netflix era, if you will. You know, there's some documentaries here or there. You know, Graham Hancock has that new show on Netflix. You see stuff like that, but it almost feels as if a lot of this, a lot of this history, this archaeology, unless you're in very tight niche circles of, of friends or uh, you're in school to study this, very niche, most people don't ever think about this kind of thing. And it's not a negative. It's just like the average person doesn't think of this. You know, most people don't have any idea. It's Again, it's not negative. It's just, it's not what they're interested in. Uh, but I think that this is a fascinating piece of history, just the links between these idols and these statues, let alone all the other incredible discoveries that don't, they don't seem to show. They absolutely show that at the very least, man had, no matter what his ethnicity, no matter what his background, what his beliefs were, and I mean all man, women included, of course, man, mankind, all of mankind had one collective type of consciousness. They were seeing the world in the same exact way, 
no matter where they were in the world. And they were designing and building and constructing all of these incredible things that seemed to parallel each other. And, you know, on the surface, that makes sense. The idea that, you know, maybe man wasn't part of some global civilization, but, you know, pockets of civilization here or there, they saw the world in the same way, they developed the same ideas, etc. Now, that would make sense for mythology, but it doesn't make sense for the exact same kind of architecture, the exact same kind of art, the exact same kind of, like, precisely, in some cases, like, almost exactly the same exact story of something global or cataclysmic. Uh, and I and, and the best proof of that is just look at, you know, d- cities in your country. Every city is a little different, right? Uh, just look at countries like architecture in Russia is a lot different than architecture in Italy or the United States. Architecture in Japan is way different than architecture anywhere else in the world. Uh, even similar, but even different than China or Korea. Very similar, but still much different, much more unique. So humans obviously were interconnected in some way and or they had some sort of uh, unifying thread that linked them, which is why all of these statues essentially look the same uh, and seem to depict the same thing. If you look at the Moai heads on Easter Island on Rapa Nui, there is a very good chance they're depicting the same exact thing that is depicted in the Veracocha statues in Bolivia. And it's not too far from Bolivia, but when you see the same kind of thing in Turkey, it's pretty far from Turkey, you realize, okay, something here is is not right. Something here is missing context. And obviously a a lot of the history that would help us perhaps to understand this is probably underwater because Rapa Nui is is not just as a, a small little teeny tiny island. I'd imagine Rapa Nui used to be uh, up above water. Most of Rapa Nui used to be above water, the surrounding area. It wasn't the small island that we know today in the same way that the Bahamas weren't or Malta uh, or anywhere. I mean, Sri Lanka or Papua New Guinea, any of these places were probably connected to larger areas. Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, probably all connected. Australia, Papua New Guinea, probably even connected to Indonesia at one point, uh, and so on and so forth. Maybe even uh, New Zealand connected to uh, to Australia, and ta- at least Tasmania was connected to Australia. So there's a long, 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 long list of things that show us these parallels, whether they're statues or their architecture or their beliefs. It's really incredible. And scientists are now saying that they've recently discovered another Moai on Easter Island. This time it's been submerged in a lake bed. And they'll eventually announce probably that this thing is mysterious. They don't know exactly how old it is, just like all the other Moai. And that's what we're going to explore in great detail tonight on the show. We're going to look not only at the secret teachings, but the parallels archaeologically, mythologically, theologically, historically, anthropologically, all throughout the world, from Rapa Nui and South and Central America to Africa, to the Middle East, even to Japan. We're going to explore as much of that as possible tonight on the show, and we're going to do some of it with our really good friend, Brad Olson, author of the Esoteric Book Series. Brad will be with us in the second hour tonight, so if you can get through another half hour of me in the next segment, Brad will be joining us at the top of the hour or bottom of the next hour. More after this, here on The Secret Teachings, you don't want to miss the show. Stay with us. 
It's 2023, the year of the rabbit, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings on GroundZero.radio. This is The Secret Teachings. If you'd like to contact the show, email Ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com or find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesecretteachings. Hey there, it's Ryan Gable. You know you can always listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on GroundZero.radio. I don't need it. And for free in the monetized archives on our website or on any radio or podcast player. I don't need it. But you can also help support the show by subscribing to the ad-free archive with montages, digital books, and a private RSS feed. I definitely don't need it. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe today. I need your support economically and energetically will keep us on air into the future. If you're interested in all things that include the occult, from witchcraft to voodoo, and from mythology to alchemy, then why not check out the book Occult Arcana? Maybe you want to look at technology, black goo, UFOs, and demonic pacts made in the entertainment industry. Check out the technological elixir. Or if that's not enough, check out Good Philosophy. All three of these books are available in softcover or PDF at www.thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can read reviews, see pictures, and even order yours today. It not only supports The Secret Teachings, but most importantly, it supports you. Broadcasting from somewhere between heaven, hell, and purgatory. It's The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Release the Kraken! Hello, folks. This is Jordan Maxwell, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Excellent shows with your host, Ryan Gable. listening to the secret teachings radio i'm your host ryan gable a new easter island statue submerged for a few hundred years has been discovered a new moai one of easter island's iconic statues was found in the bed of a dry volcano crater the indigenous community and the administrators of the site have confirmed that this is an official moai statue it's found on February 21st by a team of volunteers from three Chilean universities collaborating on a project to restore the marshland in the crater of the Rano Raku volcano. Now, if you look at Easter Island, you might have seen a documentary or two over the years, or you've heard it talked about on radio shows like this. Rapa Nui is a strange, strange place. There are indigenous people there. They used to have a language called Rongo Rongo, but the Christian missionaries destroyed most of the evidence of that, destroyed most of the history of that. Rapa Nui, Easter Island, is famous for those Moai heads. I mean, obviously, having these strange statues looking and having lots of them, not like a few dozen, like hundreds of them, all over the island, seemingly looking out across the ocean as if they're waiting for something. It kind of implies 
when you find the same exact imagery in Bolivia and other parts of South and Central America, in Turkey, in Africa, when you find these kinds of things all over the world and you dig into the mythology, which might not just be myth in the sense we can write it off, it's just a story, it might actually be history, which over time, because of transmission verbally or written, mistranslations, misidentifications, misunderstandings, it obscures the initial historical record. But we still get pieces and bits and fragments of it. And a lot of researchers have pointed out it's almost as if these Moai are looking out over the ocean waiting for something to arrive or waiting for something to come back. Some might see it as defensive. Some might see it as offensive. Some might see it as neutral. You know, it's my view that what these Moai these Moai heads, what they're looking at, what they're looking for, is they're looking for the return of Veracocha. They're looking for the return of Quetzalcoatl. They're looking for the return of Osiris. Now, what they referred to this Veracocha Osirian character on Easter Island, I don't know. I've never been to Easter Island. There isn't a lot of mythology about Easter Island, but we can assume that based on what these statues look like, based on their positioning, based on the way that their their hats, they actually some of them have hats, the way that those, those hats were colored with this red pigment, that the same people, I don't know who they were, probably not aliens, but the same people that came to Easter Island are the same people that went to South America in, in general, the same people that went to Africa, the same people that went to uh, all over the Middle East, that went to Asia, etc., and brought civilization. And so in the same way that Quetzalcoatl was driven out of Central America and in the same way that Veracocha was driven out of South America and in the same way that Osiris was driven out of Egypt by his brother Set or Seth, they left on the waters, they left on the ocean, Osiris was put on to the Nile, they left on the waters Veracocha was conspired against in the same way Osiris was conspired against and put into a coffin or a boat sent across the waters, whether that's a lake, a river, or the ocean, which is really interesting because in the case of Veracocha, you have Veracocha being put on Lake Titicaca. In the case of Osiris, you have Osiris being put on the river Nile. In the case of Quetzalcoatl, you have Quetzalcoatl being forced back into what we call the Gulf of Mexico and out into the Atlantic Ocean. So whether it's an ocean or it's a river or it's a lake, all of these creator gods were put back onto the water by force or they were put into a coffin they were essentially kidnapped and gotten rid of, conspired against. And so the people who desired the influences and the benefits of what those creator deities or those civilizers had to provide to them, the people yearned for their return. And you can find, obviously, a parallel there with Jesus Christ as well. Jesus Christ is ascending to heaven, and now man awaits his return. Jesus is going to return and bring with him salvation, 
for all of our sins and all of the evil that's done. And th this is really the, the foundation of the conspiracies. It's evil that forces Veracochin, Quetzalcoatl, and Osiris out of Central South America and out of Africa. Uh, even in India, you have the exact same story told of the um, right off the coast. I think it's the, the very northwest coast of India, Dwarka. Uh, Krishna was conspired against. It's the exact same story over and over and over again. And you find that the, the common thread that links all of this is something or somebody, whatever you choose to call it, wanted to bring civilization to man. And somebody, whatever you want to call it, something else, did not want that to happen. So the battle between Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca parallels the Indian myth of Lord Shiva, driven out of the holy city of Dwarka by King Salwa. It's the same exact story. And Krishna is Christos. It's the Christ. So Krishna in India is basically Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was also conspired against and crucified and then went to heaven and promised to return. You have the same story told everywhere. I mean, you think about it. I can say it over and over again, but think about the locations of these stories. This is literally the same story told in Bolivia and Peru. Lake Titicaca It's the same story told in Central America, the Gulf of Mexico, where Quetzalcoatl was, was placed or was sent. It's the same story told in Africa and Egypt. The same story told in India. It's literally just, you can follow it around the world. It's, the, it's not kind of like the same story. It is the exact same story. And so when you look at Easter Island, you look at these Moai heads, they're looking out over the water, most of them. Some of them still looking out over the water, but they're, they're further up on the island. All of these heads seem to be looking for something. Uh, hopefully, you know, this this de deity or deities or creators or whatever they are, civilizers, looking for them to return. At least that's what we can sort of assume based on what we see. So according to Science Alert and Popular Mechanics and a bunch of others, they found a new Moai in this dried up lake bed. So when you see this Moai, it might just seem like, Oh, they just found another one. But here's the thing. For this Moai to be in a dried lake bed and essentially submerged and buried, uh, and I don't know if you've seen these Moai, they're big. They're very large. Unless it was just a one-off, um, it's very likely that the construction of these, these objects, these, I don't know if they're really stellas, but these, these giant pillars is ancient, ancient history. For, for example, if you consider the fact that the earliest excavations of these Moai was around the early 20th century, 1914. In 2009, Joanne Van Tilburg from UCLA began probably the most extensive excavation of these Moai. And in between that time, there were little investigations of what these things are. And since then, even though since 1914 this has essentially been known, since then we found in the last decade and change 
that a lot of these moai actually have bodies that have been buried. Now, that's really, really weird, right? They have giant bodies. It's not just the head. They have bodies, and some of them are different. Some have tall, elongated, kind of cylindrical or square-like bodies. Some of them are more so just the head. When scientists or when archaeologists or when National Geographic or the History Channel, when they go to Rapa Nui and they do their little tests to show how they move these things with ropes, they're not using the full moai. They're using, like an, I think it's like an eighth of the, the, the head, but the head itself is only a fraction of the whole body. And uh, the National Geographic documentary I watched about it, they couldn't even get an, like, a, like a scale model of the thing to really move with the ropes. It was something like they moved it a few feet and then it fell over and they couldn't get it back up. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, well, this is definitely, we, we moved it, so this is, this is how they did it. Probably not. So 1914, they knew that these things had bodies. Fast forward about 100 years, and now we have confirmed that most of them have bodies. They actually have hats as well which are colored red. We'll get to that in a second. And that these bodies are, well, they're buried. And a lot of people have offered suggestions on why, why this is. Why are they buried? Uh, researchers like Robert Schock have given his two cents. People suggest because of a deluge of, of, of the ocean, that the island was, was covered in water. Waters receded. It brought a lot of a lot of uh, ocean sediment and sand, and it built up, and that's what caused the, the burial. But that might not be the case. It might be a lot older than that. Some have suggested that it's a buildup of sediment, and that buildup of sediment takes place over a lot longer period of time than just some ocean waves uh, flooding the island. So... If it's just sediment, we're talking it's a, it's a lot, 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 lot older considering how deeply buried these things are than they, they initially considered. And I would imagine if I were an investigator, if I was an archaeologist and I was a researcher, I'd imagine if I had access to all the data, if I was there on the ground, I would find strong parallels between the types of things that are on Rapa Nui and the types of things you find in Bolivia and Peru. You're going to find the exact same kind of hand positions on the Moai that you find on the Veracocha uh, stellas or on the creator civilizing deity type pillars um, at Tiwanaku. So this is the exact same kind of building, the exact same kind of carving, the exact same kind of, of, of thing that is being created, that is being portrayed. They portray Veracocha and then these Moai, which... Interestingly enough, the Moai faces have a similar look to them as some of the depictions of Veracocha. Uh, now, the Moai heads obviously are not, they don't really look European in the same way, but some I'm saying some of the depictions of Veracocha have a, have a similar look to the Moai. Take from that what you will. But the red hats, they have red hats. This is something that I didn't know for the longest time. This is back in like 2000. 10 2011 and uh you know i had shirley andrews on the show and we were talking about the the red hats of these things and it's really striking because if you look at the pictures you, you sh if you don't know what i'm talking about type in moai or type in easter island heads and you'll see them look at these heads look at the bodies 
and then look at some of the hats that these heads wear. You look at some of these hats that these heads wear, and they, they're painted in this red pigment. Now, for some people, that might just be a decoration. I don't think it's a decoration because if you look at the king's chamber of the great pyramid of Khufu or Giza, the king's chamber bears a striking resemblance to sites like Gigantesia on the island of Gozo or the Hypogeum on the nearby island of Malta, which is a subterranean womb-like thing, just like the king's chamber. And what do the king's chamber, Gigantesia, and the Hypogeum all have in common? They all have this red pigment used to paint the walls. The king's chamber, the Great Pyramid, has this red pigment on it. The megalithic site of Gigantesia on the island of Gozo has a red pigment on the inside chambers. And the Hypogeum, which is this very subterranean womb-like thing, it also has this red pigment. Red within the confines of such rooms likely represents the pain and blood of birth. And not just birth from a female per se, but birth as in a rebirth. Christians tell you that they're born again, right? This is the idea found in the secret teachings, the mystery schools. You are born again. You are resurrected from the tomb, from the womb-like structure of the hypogeum or gigantesia or the king's chamber. And when you are born again, you become, as I've said thousands of times on the show, you become a son or a daughter of God as opposed to a son or a daughter of man. Even if you're female, you become a son, S-U-N, of God. And that could be interpreted in many ways, but we are suns, we are stars, we are sparks, we are little tiny fires burning in these physical vessels. That's the soul. The soul is represented by fire. And fire, which is bright and clear, and it's a concept. If you look at the, the, the kanji character for sun, whether that's Chinese or Japanese, the kanji character for the sun is the same character for um, the, for, well, for the country of Japan, but it's also the same character for bright, for light, uh, for, for warmth. It's a conceptual thing. It's the sun. You are a sun. Your soul is fire. The fire is the sun. Light, warmth, beauty, clearness, brightness, etc. You are purified, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You become a son of God through this process of living resurrection. And as some of you might know, you might recall the story of Lazarus. And the story of Lazarus is that Lazarus was brought forth, come forth, Lazarus, brought forth, brought back from the dead. You can read this in the Bible, Lazarus come forth, the same words that were used as Manly P. Hall has documented in his books in the Egyptian mystery schools. The priest would come into the chamber of the pyramid of the temple and say, well, if, if I were in the sarcophagi, Ryan come forth, I would be resurrected after three days and I would be brought back to life. I would be, therefore, as I exited the temple to the rising eastern sun, 
a son of God or a daughter of God. And in, in that case, again, son or daughter, and we're not necessarily talking about men and women or boys and girls. We're talking about the son, S-U and the son. Everybody becomes a son of God, a spark of divinity and creativity and everybody who goes through that process of initiation recognizes there is something after death and that life is an illusion. It is Maya. Life is Maya. Just like um, Peter walking on the waters, waters, and they are illusions and they begin to sink. He begins to sink into the waters when he doubts Christ, when he doubts the truth of what he really is. It's metaphoric. It's symbolic in the same way that, you know, Jonah is in the belly of the whale. For about the same amount of time that Jesus is in the tomb and for the same amount of time that Amaterasu is in the tomb and brings darkness to the whole world and then is brought back out of the tomb and she is, she is resurrected, if you will, bringing light back to Japan, bringing light back to the world. And in fact, that whole concept, this is, this is really fascinating, in very old ancient Japanese, the word red means bright and pure. And this is probably why the, the Japanese flag, they still use the red sun, the land of the rising sun, the land of the eastern sun. Red is bright and pure. Red is purifying. Red is therefore now the blood of Christ, right? The red blood of Christ purifies you. In old Japanese, red is a, well, we will, the name red that you know we know in English, red is a symbol of brightness and clarity. It is a symbol of purification. And therefore, it's no wonder that the female priests or female priestesses in ancient Sumer also wore red when they would administer the sacred rites in the mystery schools, the same ones that were performed in Greece, in Egypt, in I mean, even in Japan, all over the world. These, these, these same kinds of rites have been administered so red is blood being purified in the blood of the lamb but red is also brightness it's clarity red is the sun red is fire red is the soul so we are sons s-u-n we are sons of god and the red is also what you find on those walls at gigantesia on the island of Gozo, technically the Hypogeum, on the island of Malta, and the king's chamber in Egypt. And if you pay attention, I'm sure that you can find the red all over the world used in the same types of settings. And in fact, that red pigment type of thing is also used on the hats worn by the Moai on Rapa Nui, which means that they could have the same symbolic significance as those red chambers, those red hats, well, they could represent almost like a solar disc. The same kind of solar disc that is, you know, in the depictions worn by Jesus, or Horus has the solar disc, or Isis has the solar disc, or Hathor has the solar disc, or, I mean, there's so many different Egyptian gods that have the solar disc above their head because they are representations of that very thing. The sun, fire, the soul, Clarity, brightness, purity, so purifying. And the heart, of course, is, is depicted with the color red. The heart, feeling from the heart rather than the stomach. Knowing intuitively, 
That's the soul. I mean, Amaterasu, her name means light of heaven. She is the light of the heavenly realms. And the light of the heavenly realms is, well, it's an, ex- an extension of that light is the soul. It's fascinating. She is the heavenly light, the red fire that burns the soul, that burns an extension of God, a sun, a little spark of divinity extended from heaven to man. I mean, just on that idea alone, finding the same thing in, in, in Japanese, in Nihongo, in Gigantesia, in the Hypogeum, in Africa, in the King's Chamber, and on Rapa Nui, the same concept uh, conceptualization uh, of, of the symbol of what the color red represents, the heart, the fire, the sun, the soul, heaven, etc. All of these things indicate that ancient man had a much more sophisticated, and I don't want to use the word complicated in a negative sense, but a much more complicated understanding of the world and his place in the world and how to create manufacture and cultivate harmony in that world, which is the point of the mystery schools. Much more than, I mean, infinitely more than we give man credit for. Because obviously we look at the world that we live in today and we think, look, I've got a nice microphone and a nice mixing board and I've got a, you know, some Bose speakers and I've got a nice cell phone and a nice car. I mean, I don't have a nice car, but you know, everybody around me seems to have nice stuff. You know, I, I try to keep my, my life minimally, uh, minimally invasive. I don't like a lot of things invading on my, my body. I want to just live simply, but I look around me. Everybody has nice stuff. It's not bad to have nice stuff, but we see those nice things, the new technologies, we see them as progression or advancement. Right, it's it's moving us forward into a better time, a better age. We nobody in the past could have been more advanced than we are today. I mean, look at the '90s. We had cell phones and briefcases. Now we have cell phones that fit into our pockets, and we can do all kinds of complex calculations on them. That must mean that we're advanced. No, it means the technology's advanced. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're as a, as a person doesn't mean that you're advanced. There really isn't a lot of creativity that comes out of the, the red, the bright, clear, sun, fire, soul. A lot of the things that are developed in the modern world are a result of improving things that are already in existence. Or, you know, you think of new technologies, a, a lot of stuff is created by and for computers. It's not a creation of man, per se. It's a creation of something artificial. It is really the opposite of... The, the the clearly the wisdom that our ancestors had, uh, whether the average person was aware of it, I mean, at least some sect or some segment or some fragment or some element, some component of society, call them priests or whatever, had this knowledge. And maybe it was after the flood, maybe it destroyed Atlantis, whatever you want to call it, but these civilizers from the old world before it was destroyed, they went out and they brought civilization to man everywhere, whether that's India or it's the Middle East or it is Africa or it is the island of Malta, which probably wasn't an island uh, at the time. It was probably connected to Sicily uh, or it is Rapa Nui, 
which for all we know, Rapa Nui could have been connected to Chile at some point. And, and depending on how old these Moai statues are, we're talking way, 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 way in the past, not a few thousand or 10,000 or so years. This is all, to me, very fascinating. I hope it's also fascinating to you. And there'll be more of this coming up after break. We're going to talk more about the Moai on Easter Island and what they potentially signify when we see parallels to them around the world. I'm Ryan Gable, your host. I ask you to please download and stream the show for free because we get paid for that when you do it for free. Also to subscribe to the show and grab a copy of one of my books. Occult Arcana has a lot of what we're talking about tonight in it. So Occult Arcana at www.thesecretteachings.info. You can use PayPal or Cash App to purchase the book. And we are doing autographs for the Contact in the Desert fundraiser. So check that out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings. More after this. Don't go anywhere. From the occult and theology to history and the paranormal, the secret teachings radio show brings you that and more Monday through Friday on ground zero dot radio. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. If you're looking to learn more in 2023, then look no further than books from The Secret Teachings. The Technological Elixir explores UFOs, artificial intelligence, and demonic contracts in the entertainment industry. Liberty Shrugged is an illuminating and nonpartisan look into American history, focusing on natural law, slavery, and the war for independence. Food philosophy is not a diet book, but it does help alleviate confusion over food industry propaganda with specific focus on bizarre ingredients that are put into your foods. And Occult Arcana is a compendium of esoteric wisdom, from theology and sympathetic magic to witchcraft, voodoo, and the origins of holidays. Get physical and digital copies of these books only at www.thesecretteachings.info. And remember, all physical books also come with a digital copy as well. This is one of the best discussions I've been on in a long time. You guys are right on it. Howdy, this is Joe Mars, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. You know you can always listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on Ground Zero Dot Radio and for free in the monetized archives on our website or on any radio or podcast player. But you can also help support the show by subscribing to the ad-free archive with montages, digital books, and a private RSS feed. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe today. Your support economically and energetically will keep us on air into the future. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Laura. I'm from Las Vegas, and I listen to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable because he never fails to provide us with great information from various topics on which he's done extensive and thorough research to back him. Thank you for all that you do and all your hard work, Ryan, and thank you for sharing it with the rest of us. This is David Icke, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Why else would you show up with that thing on your back just three days before President Business is going to use the crackle to end the world? President Business is going to end the world? But he's such a good guy. And Octan, they make good stuff. Music, dairy products, coffee, TV shows, surveillance systems, all history books, voting machines. Wait a minute. Welcome to the darkness. I hope you find it enlightening. Think about your hero when you're at ground zero and crawl up to the fall of back to me. 
Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of the secret teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Hi, it's David Childress from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. listening to the secret teachings radio hour number two i'm ryan gable your host the music tonight is white bat audio if you're curious you can find white bat audio on youtube they let us use their music for free and we really appreciate that Secretteachings.info is our website if you'd like to check out our archive for free or subscribe to the ad free archive and get a lot of other perks we're shifting that over now to aftermath.media So if you have any questions on that, you can email us or you can email them. Tonight on the show, the Moai on Rapa Nui, a new Moai has been found in a dried up lake bed. Not sure how old this Moai is. It was discovered about two weeks ago. But if you look all over Rapa Nui or Easter Island, you find these Moai. Some of them are still stuck in rock, if you will person carving them never finished carving them out. Maybe they died or maybe they just moved on to something else. Rapa Nui is a fascinating place very far west in the middle of the ocean from Chile, otherwise known as Easter Island. They have a lot of interesting myths about Easter Island. It seems as if the Moai that are circling the island are looking out over the waters for something, maybe defensively, offensively, maybe neutral, but they're looking for something. And I can't help but think, based on their positioning, and also based on the way that the arms are placed around the front, that they mirror, not just mimic, but they mirror exactly the same kind of depictions of Veracocha in Bolivia and Peru and South America. A similar idea that is found with Osiris in Egypt, civilizer gods or civilizing gods. Quetzalcoatl in Central America, and also Krishna in India. And in all four of those cases, in in particular with the case of Krishna, the case of Osiris, the case of Quetzalcoatl, the case of Viracocha, all four of these creator gods were forced into the water by some kind of evil. It was Lake Titicaca in South America. It was the Gulf of Mexico in Central America for Quetzalcoatl, Viracocha in the former case. It was the River Nile for Osiris, and it was off the coast of Dwarka in northwest India into the Arabian Sea. Same exact kind of a story. And in fact, if you look at the Moai, as I said, they have their hands around the front. The hands around the front, it's, it's something that you find at the same type of depiction of Veracocha in South America at Tiwanaku. Uh, the stone slab with the bearded heads very European looking, the idols either having their hands wrapped around the front or holding some kind of object in their hands. And that's the same thing that you're going to find with Urfa Man in Turkey, also in Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, the pillar figure with the hands wrapped around the front. And you find the same types of depictions, not exactly the same, but same types of depictions, at least some kind of character holding on to little bags that mean 
containers, little tiny containers that some interpret to be wisdom or knowledge. They are fish-like, bird-like, or human-like all over ancient Sumer. There is clearly a worldwide and very ancient, perhaps more ancient than ancient, civilizing thread that ran through everything. And we see a vast amount of evidence of that today. And they just found, as I said, another Moai on Easter Island, Rapa Nui, really submerged, buried. Uh, And we know that these other Moai have bodies that are buried, and it might have been from flooding or it might have been from sediment buildup. Either way, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. We know at the last glacial maximum, the melting of some of the ice, a lot of land was, of course, lost, prime real estate under the water now that probably yields untold treasures of human history. And who better to speak with about these untold, unexcavated treasures than our good friend and world traveler, Brad Olson, author of Modern Esoteric, Beyond Esoteric, a variety of books on sacred places, etc. Brad Olson and I have known each other for probably close to a decade now. It's been a long time. Brad Olson is with us this evening to talk about all of these things that I've thus far explained. Brad, how are you? Hey, Ryan, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. And what a great topic to talk about because these are historical events and uh, esoteric history that has been withheld from us. And it's really good that you're bringing light to it because so much of our history has been edited out. So this helps put the pieces back together and gives us a more comprehensive picture of who we are as a human race. Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, before we move on, are you able to get a little closer to the microphone, Brad? How's this sound? <clears throat> right there. Go ahead and give me a test. Uh, test one, two, three. Yeah, that's that's a little bit, little bit better, a little bit clearer. Uh, yeah, so do you see the same thing that I see? I know that I've read some other authors who have noticed that the Moai... Uh, just like the pillars at Gobekli Tepe, they have a same, uh, the same or a similar kind of a, a hand positioning on the on their bodies. Uh, the bags that are held by these deities, these fish or bird-like creatures in Sumeria, same kind of bags hold uh, or that are being held by Veracocha-like figures in South America. There seems to be some sort of thread that connects all of this. Yeah, that's a very astute observation. And it does suggest that there was once a world civilization that was sharing these artistic techniques, the megalithic building, as well as depicting native people in Central and South America with facial hair. And most of the indigenous people in the Americas did not have facial hair. They would just have a little bit on their mustache, sometimes their chin and uh, sideburns, but the American Indians would just pluck them out. They were always without facial hair. So to see these depictions then with, with full beards is another uh, indication that there was a world culture at one time and influenced by different people. Now, do you look at that as in terms of the beards and in terms of that being maybe more European or are you personally looking at that in your research as being European or being something else? I mean, we could interpret European in a lot of ways, but maybe there was a, a more 
uh, sophisticated, advanced global culture. And after flooding and cataclysmic events, whatever was left of that culture, it wasn't European. They went all over the world to try to restart civilization. So how do you kind of interpret that? They say European, but how can we break that down maybe in a different way? Well, some do have European features, long faces, high cheekbones with facial hair. But I would agree with Graham Hancock that everything keeps getting dated older and older and older. And when you look at the Olmec culture in Mexico, clearly the features of the face are very African, uh, Negroid features that really would only come from across the ocean. So it's the whole concept of cultural diffusion, that is other cultures over this long stretch of time, even before the last ice ages, that would have migrated to the Americas, and if they were of a high culture, would have influenced the indigenous people, and the indigenous people would have thought of them as gods or very advanced beings and and, uh, glorified them in sculpture and paintings and and some of the writings in the Mayan glyphs. I see a a parallel also between that and the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was, of course, conspired against and crucified in the story. And it's a very similar kind of a thing we read about with Quetzalcoatl. He was conspired against by Tezcatlipoca, and he left on the the ocean on a boat made of snakes. I think uh, snakes or some kind of it was kind of described like being metallic. He left on that boat. Same thing with uh, Lake Titicaca and Veracocha. He was conspired against. Same thing with Osiris. He was conspired against. Same thing with Krishna. He was conspired against. Uh, And all of these figures are kind of like saviors or civilizers. And it's almost as if the the people of those regions, maybe the priests or uh, the the, the military classes, whatever you want to call them, they engaged in acts of violence to push these civilizers away because they wanted control of the the local populations. do you know much about that? Because all these stories seem to sound really similar. You have these high technologically advanced individuals that come and then they're conspired against by these really aggressive, violent people that uh, push them out of the area. That, that's a great point, Ryan. And this also ties into the discovery of Easter Island. You were mentioning in the first hour about the Moai and the new discovery in a dry lake bed. And that's quite fascinating. They're going to find it's very old. It's contemporary with the other Moai. Easter Island was discovered by the Dutch on Easter Sunday, and they spent a bit of time there and documented two distinct cultures living together at the time in relative harmony. They called them the Long Years, and they were much taller and much distinct from the Polynesian shorter and darker skin that were superior in numbers, but it was certainly the long ears that are depicted as the Moai, because you can see how they elongated their ears using uh, ear piecing uh, and have big bulbous eyes and these long faces similar to a different race of people. We don't always have to say European. It could also be uh, Central Asian. It could also be uh, other parts of the world where they just came over. But clearly the long years, the taller of the two races of people inhabiting Easter Island when the Dutch got there, were firmly in control. So the Dutch did some trading with them, and unfortunately they left some modern arms, such as guns and other weapons, 
that eventually came to the indigenous Polynesian people. And what happened over the next decades is a basic civil war on the island, a resource war, the toppling over of the Moai statue, and the basic eradication of all the long years. And this was reported by Captain Cook when he made his voyage on the resolution some decades later to Easter Island and found that it was an absolute environmental catastrophe and noticed that the Dutch arms played a role in the revolt of the indigenous people against the long years. So it's a good example of how when resource wars began, they almost always end very dramatically, including the wiping out of certain people uh, fighting over those limited resources, which Easter Island clearly has. By the way, they also cut down all the trees. They denuded the island of all trees, which were a food source, and now it's becoming a desert. Desertification has struck in Easter Island because uh, they don't have the tree cover to prevent soil erosion. And what you're describing also with guns, it's like a new technology, uh, more advanced technology that is made available. And then that results in conflict and, you know, a civil war and basically the deterioration of, of society. And it's kind of a, a similar thing to, I actually think, you ever seen the movie Apocalypto? I think so, way back in the day. Yeah, so yeah it was about this. Yeah, and Apocalypto, it was about the Mayans and this crazy priest wanted to continue these human sacrifices. And that's actually part of the story of what happened in South and Central America is that Quetzalcoatl and Veracocha, these civilizers who came, they wanted to end the human sacrifice, but the priests were so angry they wanted to continue them, so they used violence to get rid of the civilizers. And they probably used some of the knowledge and technology uh, in order to get control of the populations. And then that led later to, uh, well, what we know is, you know, the Aztecs, uh, uh, the Aztecs slaughtered a lot of people in this way, but the civilizer oh, yeah. gods tried to stop those human sacrifices from taking place. They tried to replace them with sacrifices of fruits or flowers or something like that. In my book, Beyond Us, Tarek, I show a picture from the Mayan Kodak of a blood sacrifice, mm-hmm. literally pulling the heart out on top of the altar on one of these Central American pyramids. It was quite a grisly practice, for sure. By the time the uh, Spanish got to Central America and witnessed some of these grisly sacrifices, that didn't bode well with their Catholic upbringing. And that's part of the reason they crushed these cultures as ferociously as they did. Yeah, the the idea of uh, the people being barbaric, even though their history is kind of the opposite of that, a lot of ancient wisdom, which is the opposite of barbarism, uh, which we find all over the world in ancient cultures. That, that's what really fascinates me, Brad, is all over the world, everywhere you look, you, you get the same kind of story, you get the same kind of art in some cases, the same kind of architecture. But you know, if you look at like Japan today, as opposed to the United States or as opposed to wherever, you know, the architecture is so distinctly different. And if you take that idea back into history, you would think that if there was this interconnected culture, everything would would look the same. Uh, and in a way, you know, certain forms of art look the same. Certain forms of building techniques look the same. Uh, if these were separate cultures that were seeing the world in the same way and coming up with the same mythologies, you would expect that they would build and do things in a culturally distinctive way. But 
it seems not to be the case. They all built with stones. They all had almost identical mythologies, identical type types of stories, identical forms of art. That does, I think, lead us to, to think that there was not just an ancient, ancient civilization, but that it was global. It was all over the place, and it was very well in contact with uh, itself. Everywhere you looked in the world, there was contact with, you know, from one side to the other. And that's what they, I mean, they found, what did they find? Like giant ships in Egypt next to the pyramids. They know that uh, yeah. the, the Jomon culture of Japan, uh, it's official. The Jomon culture, which was just supposed to be a bunch of hunter gatherers, they used boats to get to Brazil. That's official history. So there was a worldwide culture, worldwide civilization, and they absolutely traversed the oceans. They absolutely did. And my new conference presentation that I'm giving a dozen or so conferences this year is based on the evidence of an antediluvian that is pre-flood high civilization that once lived on the planet. It starts with all the maps of the age of exploration, all showing Antarctica, including a map from the Chinese in 1421 several decades before Columbus came over here, showing the Americas quite uh, distinctly as separate continents, as well as Antarctica down there. Then when Captain Cook circumnavigated the Southern Ocean and never set sight of Antarctica, the map suddenly changed in the late 17th century. And it's very interesting because then only Two decades later, after Cook published his findings uh, of the Southern Ocean being very rich in seal and seal, uh, whale life, that all these merchant marines went down to the Southern Ocean around Antarctica, and they were the ones who discovered the continent in 1821. So it's only a little over 200 years since Antarctica has been confirmed as the seventh continent. It's actually the fifth largest continent. But in this presentation, then I move on to the uh, megalithic and polygonal architecture literally around the world, Ryan. It's quite fascinating. You find it in Japan, you mentioned. You find it, of course, in uh, Europe, in many countries, in India. And, of course, you find it in Peru, Bolivia, and Central America. So it would appear that in this world civilization, there was an exchange of knowledge about this building technique to move megalithic structures, to create these grand architectural designs that we're still playing catch up and trying to figure out how did they actually do it. And I end the presentation with a dozen or so underwater archeological sites. Some of them are megalithic and carved into the stone like Yonaguni off of the uh, southern Okinawa Island chain. How do you do that unless the water level was much lower, like during the last ice age? How can you possibly create megalithic structures, such as off the coast of Cuba, that look like a Mayan city with a plaza, a central pyramid, and flanking pyramids? And that's, that's a real deep one. That's uh, close to a mile underwater. So clearly there was other civilizations that have risen and fallen and dropped out of memory and only being rediscovered now. I was actually reading about that one off the coast of Cuba recently, and it's, it's massive. It's extremely, it has to be extremely ancient. Uh, and as you said, it's very, very deep. 
But even if you look at some that aren't as deep off the coast of India or even Yanaguni, I mean, you could, you could dive there and, and see it if you had permission, yep. knew what you were doing. We're still talking in a lot of these cases, tens of thousands of years old uh, based on inundation mapping alone. It just shows that, you know, conservatively, we're talking 10 plus thousand years ago. But but a lot of that research like Graham Hancock has conducted in his book Underworld and other books, uh, other researchers have done the same. It shows us that it actually aligns with the period of the melting of the ice, the ice sheets and the ice caps at the, the end of the last glacial maximum. So it actually matches with the science, the 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 um, speculative archaeology and the things that have actually been found, uh, the estimates of how old they are. It tends to match with the meltdown of the ice and the rising of sea levels. It sure does. And that and that's what really brings geography, the movement of the plates the last ice ages and these very, very old civilizations into greater perspective. Cause now we see, well, remember it was always, uh, Oh, Sumer was the earliest civilization and then Egypt. Well, now we know Gobekli Tepe in Turkey is much older than both of them. Well, at least the way it's been dated before. But when you look at, uh, Graham Hancock's research and others, how it's so provable, that there were civilizations on this planet that employed high technology in moving these blocks and creating megalithic structures, you begin to see that uh, maybe we're not as advanced as we think we are and that this had been on this planet sometime before, as well as in uh, evidence of nuclear war on this planet a long, long time ago. And that is in the evidence of vitrified sand in the Sahara desert that is exposed to such great heat that the sand turns to glass as well as in the, uh, Indus Valley cultures of Mohajindaro where they excavated this Indus river civilization. And when they got to the layer of the street, they found people out in the street, sometimes holding hands as if a major cataclysm had occurred very rapidly somebody broke out a Geiger counter and found them highly radioactive, even thousands of years after Mohajindaro was occupied. And it was just left for the dead. In fact, one of the nicknames is the city of the dead because so many bodies were just found kind of like Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted, just caught off guard and just died on the spot where, where they were when this event happened. You know, if you have like, um, if you just have basic mythology, uh, obviously basic mythology, you know, heroes and heroines and, and monsters and things like that. A lot of that is symbolic. It's telling a story that maybe there's a moral to the story, but also within mythology, depending on how it's transmitted and passed down, uh, you obviously get through verbal or through written transmission. You get mistranslations, you get misunderstandings. And over a long, long period of time, something that might have been very real turns into a myth. But a lot of myths actually tend to be backed up and supported by historical or archaeological finds. So that means that myth could actually be looked at not only as a form of science because it's observation and then documentation, but also as a form of history, which is I know, you know, what Graham Hancock also argues as well. Mythology can be used more as a kind of a history book in a way. But we're talking about a time period that's not a few thousand years old. We're talking about a time period that is tens of thousands of years old. And that means that there's going to be very little left over from that time. But we find so much already, like those big megalithic underwater 
uh, structures and things that are above water as well, that to dismiss them as being the result of primitive man building with stones is really ignorance at its finest in the modern day. Because if we can't really reconstruct them, we can't really understand what they are or where they came from or how people built them. We just dismiss them. It's almost like a form of Smithsonian gate, if you will, as people call it. We're just dumping the evidence because we don't want to address what it might imply. That's absolutely correct, Ryan. And you brought up Tiwanaku in Bolivia on the shores of Lake Titicaca, which I had the great uh, pleasure of visiting four years ago on my trip down to catch a boat to Antarctica and discovering that Lake Titicaca is a giant caldera. It's a volcanic lake that was once at sea level when it was uh, formed and the water had seeped in from the ocean. It had originally been salt water and then has risen up to about 2,500 feet in elevation. And what exists in Lake Titicaca are the only example of freshwater seahorses in the world. Oh, that's right. I've read that. That's fascinating. Isn't it? And then right on the banks of Lake Titicaca, well, actually it's now three miles away, but it had shown that Kiwanaku was actually a seafaring port because there are docks three miles away built out of stone, uh, piers which look like had been supplying the town itself. And in this particular city, including Pumapuku right next door to Tiwanaku, are like a child's Lego set that just got upturned and all the pieces are just scattered everywhere. There has been a bit of reconstruction to show you what some of these uh, even pyramids would have looked like. But Tiwanaku is agreed by everybody to be pre-Incan, that it was a predecessor to the Incans. But even the Incans themselves would say that when they came to Cusco, they already found the infrastructure of this megalithic city already there. So, of course, they used it. Of course, they built upon it. You got most of your work already done. But then when the Europeans came, they didn't like this whole idea of ancient civilization. So they just said it's all Incan, except for Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, which is largely, well, universally regarded by everybody as pre-Incan. We're talking like, I've read about this, I think it's like what estimated it could be beyond 10,000 BC or something, right? Well, that's right. And, and when you calculate into these massive earth changes where this caldera would have risen up 12,500 feet from sea level, it certainly would have destroyed any megalithic buildings around there, even though the megalithic buildings are designed in such a way that many of them in Peru have withstood very big earthquakes, some of the biggest earthquakes ever recorded. And that's, of course, just in the last hundred or so years since we've been recording the Richter scale. But they have withstood the eon test of time, whereas the Incan designs, which are still good brickwork, but they do crumble easier than the pre-Incan megalithic stuff. And then, of course, the Spanish is basically adobe brickwork, and that just crumbles in a big earthquake. So it's it's really a de-evolution of technology and building yes. techniques that you find in South America. Yes. Brad Olson is our guest this evening. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. It, of course, makes us think what else is buried under the ground, under our feet, and what else lies on the floor of the ocean, sometimes not very far off the coast 
of any given area of the planet. Could be anywhere. There is so much to discover. There's already so much that's been discovered. A lot of things we just don't hear about, but it already rewrites human history by, in some cases, tens of thousands of years, perhaps. Again, I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. More with Brad Olson after this. Don't go anywhere. It's 2023, the year of the rabbit, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings on GroundZero.radio. Want to hear more of The Secret Teachings radio show? Search for the show on any radio or podcast player, or find links and a free archive at thesecretteachings.info. If you want to get rid of those annoying ads and get extra perks like access to the montage archive, digital copies of Ryan's books, and early access to the show, then subscribe to the full show archive at thesecretteachings.info. Visit the website and click the button that says subscribe. You can do so monthly, yearly, or through a one-time donation. Your support always keeps the secret teachings on the air. You could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence. David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm a last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's The Secret Teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. If you enjoy The Secret Teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. This is David John Oates from ReverseSpeech.com. You are listening to The Secret Teaching with Ron Gable. Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. listening to the secret teachings radio i'm your host ryan gable hour number two segment number four the final segment tonight brad olson my good friend and our guest this evening joins us to talk a little bit about ancient history you know brad the hopi a lot of other native american tribes also believe the same thing that there are different ages of man different worlds of man destroyed by fire ice flooding etc that were in the fourth age of man or the fourth world, according to the Hopi. Uh, according to the Avestic Aryans, there are three stages of creation before our own. Uh, in India, the Indus Sarasvati or Sarasvati civilization, that area of the world, there are similar notions of mythology, uh, similar notions of theology and history, similar ideas that the world is in different stages. You have the, the Yugas, golden age of peace and harmony, the Krita Yuga or the Treta Yuga, which is the decline of virtues, and then the the, the uh, I think it's called the Devapa Para Yuga, which is like lying and ignorance and and all these things. And now we're in the most wicked Yuga, the Kali Yuga, and it just seems like, as you said in the last segment, things are devolving 
in, uh, let's call it spiritual or conscious uh, ways. And whether it's the Hopi or it's the the Yugas, or if you just read a basic mythology book, one of my favorites is Edith Hamilton's book, Mythology, and she talks about the different ages of man as well. And not archaeological ages, but ages more like Madame Blavatsky. We have the root races of man. So you find this again all over the world. You find this in the extreme esoterica. You find this in the very basic mythologies. And these ages of man, I don't think personally are mythologies. I think that they are the remnants they're kind of like the the story form remnants of ancient, ancient, ancient history. And they're all telling us the same thing, that this planet and our civilization, mankind as we know it, is much, much older and not by a few thousand years, potentially maybe even millions of years. We don't really know. But what do you think of all that? The Hopi, the, the Yugas, uh, the root races of man, it all seems to be coming from the same place. Yeah, it sure does, Ryan. In my book, Modern Esoteric, I have a picture of these gear that were found in a steam of coal in Siberia. Certainly an out-of-place artifact in Upa, but the steam of coal was dated to be millions of years old. So that's not to say that there was a civilization that spanned every single continent except Antarctica, but now we're down there now. It could have been a very high-tech civilization that once existed on the Earth with relatively few individuals, but had flying devices, the Vimana of ancient India, that could get around. Uh, Edgar Casey talked about, in the time of Atlantis, that they had a big problem with the dinosaurs. This was before the last ice age, but some remnant dinosaurs were still roaming around on the ground, on the jungly floor of some of their cities. And they had a extermination campaign to get rid of them. So maybe we were killing off uh, some dinosaurs even to this modern age. In the uh, newspaper of Tombstone, Arizona, there was a picture in the late 19th century of a bunch of people who shot down a pterodactyl. I remember that. Yeah, about a dozen of them holding up the pterodactyl. I mean, either, how do you fake that uh, 120 years ago and then even have it appear in the newspaper? Or maybe this was the Thunderbird of lore that would pick up children and fly away with them in, the, in its talons. It absolutely terrified the Native American population. And there are inscriptions and drawings, petroglyphs and pictographs of the Thunderbird all across the Southwest, even all the way up into Illinois, into the Midwest, there are depictions of Thunderbird. There have been sightings even into the, the, the recent, more modern, I'd say just say contemporary times, more contemporary times of large, massive birds like that. Uh, Linda Godfrey, who unfortunately passed away the last time she was on this show, we talked about these giant birds and uh, how some of the migratory patterns they've estimated take them back to like the Amazon. A lot of researchers believe that in some remote regions of the world, there still might be these kinds of I don't really want to call them cryptid creatures, but these very ancient types of species that are very much alive on planet Earth today. Is that, that's kind of what you're referring to, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, cryptozoology, which is a chapter in my future esoteric book that gets into a lot of the sightings and evidence of these crypto creatures that still remain in this modern day. And it's just fascinating when you tie that in with uh, ancient mythology 
that talk about the same kind of creatures that live in these remote parts of the planet. And believe it or not, there are still some wild lands. Uh, of course, the legend of Bigfoot living at the high elevations of the Himalayas and some of the real steep mountain sides here in the Pacific Northwest where I am, that uh, you have the possibility of uncontacted animals or creatures that could live far away from the human centers. Did I tell you that I went down to, you know, I'm from Florida, but I went on a trip about three years ago and I went down to the Everglades. Did I tell you I went down to the Everglades or I took that big trip? Uh, maybe not this trip. I know you're from Florida. I'm sure you've been yeah. there a few times. Yeah, well, I, I've actually never been to the Everglades, actually. So I, oh. I, I went back down to Florida and I was going through the Everglades and I actually stopped at the Skunk Ape Research Center. And oh, cool. uh, <laughs> that was fun. It was a really small little place, but it was fun. They had a big uh, skunk ape out front. And, you know, I didn't realize this, even being from Florida, that the Everglades are one of the largest national parks. They're like the, the second or I think that's the second largest outside of Yosemite. So it's a massive. Uh, outside of Yellowstone. Is it, is it Yellowstone? Maybe it's Yellowstone. It's Yos- largest, yeah. Yellowstone, Yosemite, yeah. and then Everglades. It's in the top three, but it's, it's, yeah. it's massive. Huge. Yeah, and you, I mean, there could be anything in there, and that's you know, people have seen the skunk ape. So anyway, that was that was my own experience. But another thing I I, I read about uh, many years ago, uh, one of my favorite birds is the flamingo. We used to have flamingos in our yard when I was a kid, big tall pink <laughs> birds. And I remember um, I read this; it was an old report from uh, Spanish explorers, uh, European explorers, when they first saw the flamingo, totally unique and distinct. Uh, Europeans had never seen something like this before. They took the reports back to Europe and the Europeans thought they were making it up. They just thought it was <laughs> some, some kind of fake thing that the explorers made up. And that's just one of those examples. Like anywhere you look in the world, you can find animals, you can find plants that are so distinct and so unique that even if someone today witnesses it and documents it, people are going to think it's fake if they've not seen it. And you apply that to thousands of years of ancient history it's really hard to tell uh, what is real and what is not real. But I, I like that flamingo story because it's more in recent times. And yeah, Europeans thought it was a more like a cryptid creature. They didn't believe them. And over in Australia, which was a penal colony of Great Britain, they found the duck-footed platypus and told the colonial masters about this creature who brought the word back to Britain. And they didn't believe that either. It wasn't until they actually... <laughs> sent a sample over they said oh my goodness a mammal that lays eggs with webbed feet like a duck where the heck did this thing come from i actually have a yeah i have a cryptozoology book where where that that there's like a chapter on that uh about like it's an old old book and they were still talking about that creature as if it was made up or some mystical mythical thing yeah that's funny yeah really amazing and also down in south florida is the coral castle oh yeah which is the only modern megalithic structure built in the last oh several hundred years but this was just a few decades ago a spindly little guy from latvia comes over here and he builds a megalithic castle in south florida some of those stones are over 30 tons and some of them three stories tall, like this big monolith that he used for astrological projections. So you, you got to think how, how does this little guy single handedly build this coral castle? And when asked that question, he only gives the cryptic reply. I knew the secrets of how the Egyptians built the great pyramids. 
That's right. I was I was about to ask you if if you've heard that before. I assume that you did. Yeah, he said he knew the secrets of the pyramids. I mean, however he built it, uh, it got built, and uh, it didn't seem like he had any any kind of support or help. I, I've read stories that when they would deliver these blocks, he would maybe give the driver some money or something to go get a bite to eat, and then they would come back, and these blocks would be moved, and they didn't have any idea how he did it. He didn't have cranes or modern equipment, really, so just this tiny little guy. And he moved these yeah. massive, massive blocks. Yeah, the Coral it Castle. It was actually at a different location, and he had to move it. And he ordered a flatbed truck to show up one day, and they said, oh, well, we'll bring a crane out and move these blocks where he goes, oh, that's not necessary. Just come back tomorrow morning and uh, <laughs> drive the truck over. And sure enough, that flatbed truck was stacked with megalithic blocks that he single-handedly moved all during the night. Let, let, let me ask you this from a, like a very mystical uh, and very speculative point of view. What is your opinion on that? I've read all sorts of things in esoteric and occult texts. Do you think it's acoustic levitation? I've read about the levitation using some kind of mystical white powder. That's a very, very old theory. Well, how do you think he moved those things? Or how do you think that these giant blocks were moved and positioned anywhere you find them in the world, whether it's Gobekli Tepe or if it's in South America? And that's a great question. And I posed it to the tour guide on the Coral Castle tour. I had the great opportunity of going to visit it a couple of years ago when I was down there for a conference and asked them that question. And they said, oh, he used levers and he used leverage and he had these uh, cranes, but at the top of the crane, and you can see it in the old photos, was this mysterious black box. So when I asked the, uh, the tour guide about the black box, oh yeah, that went missing. Right after he died, the Coral Castle was looted, and a lot of the uh, equipment was stolen. And he would also work with these mysterious cones in his hands, and the, the neighbor kids were spying on him at night, and they'd see him holding these cone-like uh, devices, and these blocks would move right into place. Uh, the kids were absolutely astonished, uh, and parents would go and confront Ed Lee Scalian, the builder, and, and say, well, my kids, and he said, you should tell your children not to spy on people. You know, he would just <laughs> scold them without giving any explanation of how he did it. You know, that's that's really fascinating that you say that about cones, because I'm pretty sure from Egypt to in Africa to across the Middle East and, and probably around the world, there are depictions uh, like reliefs and, and, and uh, maybe even drawings, etc., carvings of characters holding almost like ice cream cone type things. Have you seen those before? Right. Yeah, I have. And, and you were talking earlier about the man bags and some of these accoutrements that are found on these very ancient sculptures. Yeah, isn't it interesting that these cone shapes appear also elsewhere besides the story of Edley Scalian? Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually, I've never put those two things together until you just said that. I knew that he had, he had been seen with those cone type things. But then, yeah, that you find these all over the world as well. Uh, what do they call those containers? I think they're called Bondudu or something in Mesopotamia <laughs> containers. Different names in different places for sure. Something like that. But yeah, the man bag, that's always a fascination. Why show that uh, unless it had something very valuable in it? Right. Because right. anytime you put something into ancient artistry, it has to have very powerful symbolic value. So to say that these gods with 
sometimes heads of animals, but were carrying these man bags, these little uh, small purses on their side. Must have been something in there that was of utter fascination to the carvers of these relief structures. Yeah, it could have represented anything. It could have been uh, a symbol of wisdom, uh, knowledge, civilizing power, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, all those different depictions of half-human, half-animal creatures, whether like the god Ones is depicted as very human and has like this fish, almost mitre, pope-like hat. And then other depictions, it's like a, it's a full human body with almost like a, a bird or a serpentine-like head. They call that the Apkalu, I think, in Mesopotamia. Um, I mean, that, that could symbolize a lot of things. You know, the people that it's meant to depict were coming down from the sky like birdmen. And that's actually something I've read about Easter Island or Rapa Nui, that they call the people that civilized the island, they call them the birdmen. They came down from the sky and they brought some kind of civilization to the island. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. And the other thing about Easter Island and the Moai, they are also so big that they never found any realistic way that they moved those giant statues. So you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to get to it, the whole notion of auditive levitation. And that is using the uh, frequency of sound to affect matter. A good example that I use in some of my presentations is how an opera singer can shatter a wine glass with her voice. Right, right. So we know, yeah, we know that auditive frequency waves can affect matter. So just scale that up. You achieve the resonant frequency of a giant megalithic block, and then you can move it. And that's the whole notion of auditive levitation. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine that... It's maybe more more easy to imagine shattering a wine glass or moving a, a large block, but relatively speaking, some of these blocks are so big. I mean, they're like the size of a house. It's it's almost kind of incomprehensible how sound could move something like that. But reality is a lot stranger than fiction. I say, I guess. <laughs> well, you said it there. It sure is. Well, here, now here. that we can start. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Brad. I was just going to say now that we're piecing these pieces together even things like how at least Galen may have moved these devices using the cone devices, some kind of frequency devices, P putting all the pieces together, we get this bigger comprehensive picture of how the, how the ancients actually did it. So this is a really groundbreaking historical revision when we can include some of these new discoveries into what we found with some of the ancient structures around the world. Yeah, earlier this week I was talking about the Piltdown Man and how the Piltdown Man was a hoax for the early part to the midpoint of the 20th century. Charles Dawson reportedly found the missing link between ape and man uh, a couple decades yeah, after. Yeah, yeah, right after Darwin had published his evolutionary theory and Dawson finds the, right outside of England, yeah, he finds the Piltdown Man. And it took 40 years, Brad, to analyze this thing with new technology and to make the, the final conclusion that this was a fraud, this was a hoax. But for 40-something years, it was the mainstream narrative of archaeology, anthropology, uh, of human civilization. Th this, this was the missing link, and people probably paid good money to go to school to learn about something that was a complete hoax for almost half a century. And, you know, something like that is it's so small, it's just skull fragments. But then we have all these megalithic structures alone around the world 
And all that's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. That's not really part of the part of the narrative. But Piltdown Man, that's definitely official history for half a century. So when you find one fraud, then you just throw all the baby out with the bathwater kind of scenario and just say, well, then, then all these phones must be fake. But clearly the giants, and we've talked about this on The Secret Teaching before, the elongated skulls, the evidence for that, really, again, a worldwide phenomenon. They found these elongated skulls around the Black Sea in Europe, up in Scandinavia, in some of the megaliths of, of old Europe, as well as South America. You can go to a museum in Paracas, Peru, and see these elongated skulls on display, and they are clearly not human. They have 30% larger cranial capacity. They have no central suture in the middle part of the skull, plus their eye sockets and the, the entry point of the spine coming up to the skull are 30% larger on these elongated skulls than human. So clearly human-like, but not human. And some of them even still have the hair, and the hair is reddish in color. So once again, some other kind of human-like species inhabiting these areas and actually exalted to royalty status because a lot of these elongated skulls in Peru and Bolivia were found in royal cemeteries. Well, that's why the, the, the common people would bind the, the, the baby's head and then make the skull elongated over many years. They were trying to mimic those, those deities, those gods, kings, whatever you want to call them. Exactly. And of course, you can mold a skull. You can do all kinds of cranial deformation with boards and wrapping, but what you cannot do ever is increase the cranial capacity (laughs) by 30%, but not even by 1%. You can move it around, but you cannot make it grow and add brain matter. So that's okay. So that's the thing about Piltdown Man is that Piltdown Man was 40 plus years of doctrine and dogma that turned out to be fake. It was a hoax, but it fit the narrative. It fit the narrative, Brad. Those skulls don't fit the narrative. So despite the fact there being overwhelming evidence of their authenticity, of their age, and of, of all the things you just described, they don't fit the narrative. So they don't get to they don't get to be taught in schools. The av- average person doesn't get to, to learn about these. You have to go find it for yourself. Piltdown Man was spread all over the world, though. They found the missing link. But that's only because it fit the narrative, even if it was a hoax. And it was probably a setup from the get-go, Ryan, that they would just let it play out and everybody say it's the missing link, knowing that somewhere down the line it's going to be shown as a fraud. Was it a, a gorilla, part of a gorilla skull, it was an, I think? It was an, yeah, it was an ape skull. But they see, the guy, Charles Dawson, he put it into this gravel pit that had very real animal bones from extinct species that were dated millions of years ago. So he knew what he was doing. He took these pieces and put them in a very real pit to make it seem by the association that this was the million year old missing link. Talk about a conspiracy. Yeah, there you go. There's a real conspiracy theory. One of the, uh, one of the probably uh, less known conspiracies of the 20th century Piltdown man. Uh, Brad, we've got about six or seven minutes here. I wanted to ask you one other question and then uh, anything else you have on your mind. I noticed this. I noticed that, and I've never been to the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid of Khufu or Giza, but I've noticed in pictures and from authors and people I've read that the King's Chamber tends to have this like red pigment painted on the walls. Do you know anything about that? I didn't notice that when I was there, uh, but that red pigment, 
was how the Egyptians would paint their pictographs. And up in one of the chambers, which you can crawl up to above the Great Pyramid, is another fraud that was perpetuated by a 19th century archaeologist who wrote in this red pigment the name Cheops. And therefore, everybody said, well, this is the Cheops Pyramid. But he uh, didn't spell it right. He used the wrong hieroglyphic. And it's so clear that it was just a fraud by another one of these archaeologists that didn't like to date things very old. (laughs) And, of course, the Great Pyramid and what we've learned about the Sphinx and the weather dating on the side are very, very old, pre-Ice Age old, when Egypt was once a verdant jungle and had been flooded with water, and that created the erosion marks on the Sphinx. 10,000 years ago plus and so that, yep. that red pigment in the king's chamber is also something found, and I think this is more visible uh, than the king's chamber, but at Gigantesia on the island of Gozo, and also the Hypogeum uh, on, Mal- oh, yeah. on Malta, they also have this red pigment. It's the same kind of a red pigment. I don't know if it's the exact same uh, substance, but it's the exact same kind of thing that you find on the red, uh, the red pigment on the, uh, the hats that the Moai wear on Easter Island. And I, I was wondering if maybe this is just my theory. I'm wondering if the red in the hypogeum and a gigantesia in the King's chamber has something to do with the secret teachings, the mystery schools, uh, the red representing almost like blood uh, of birth being rebirthed or reborn. Like Christians say, they're born again. Uh, These, these chambers represent the womb and you go into the chamber like Amaterasu in Japan. She goes into the cave or Jesus or whomever Jonah in the whale uh, three days, and then you are resurrected like Lazarus, and then you are reborn, or you're born as a son, an S-U-N. The son is, you know, the soul, a son of God. And I was just reading this really fascinating book last night about uh, sacred science in Japan, and how they, I mean, even their flag today, they have the red sun, the land of the eastern rising sun. You have this uh, this idea of red in old Japanese. The word red uh, meant bright. It meant purity. And it has this similar feeling and association in Japan with being washed in the blood of the lamb, the red blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. And and their goddess, Amaterasu, means the light of heaven. So it's like the light of heaven that purifies, that comes down. It's the soul, it's the spirit, it's the fire that burns inside of us. And I mean, this idea, it, beyond the archaeology of these chambers, Gigantesia, the king's chamber, almost being like these wombs where these spiritual resurrections would take place, this is an extremely sophisticated form of, let's call it spirituality, uh, that I think gets grossly overlooked in the historical record. It's not just the, 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 the statues, the monuments, the megaliths. It's also what they were used for. And this is a sophisticated form of spiritual development or spirituality uh, that goes back thousands of thousands of years. The people that built these things for these reasons they were more advanced in more ways than one, Brad. It wasn't just in being able to construct these things. They had a purpose behind them, and it was a universal purpose, it seems. Oh, you're absolutely right, Ryan, and we should do another show just on that alone because they also have auditive features, uh, these oracle tubes. And I also think here in North America, up at the America Stonehenge in uh, New Hampshire, an oracle tube to create these eerie sounds that could come out. So when you're doing these occultic ceremonies, you're also bringing in acoustics and a light show 
And boy, would that be influential if you were there to witness it in some of these megalithic or underground chambers, such as on Malta. I should just end by saying that on Malta, it, there was evidence that it was succumbed by a great wave, a great flood that overcame the island and even deposited Ice Age animals such as woolly mammoths deep into the caves of Malta that were left there that could only have been washed in with a giant flood. So again, other evidence of major earth cataclysms occurring and taking out a lot of these uh, high megalithic cultures that existed. I guess the, 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 the real last question I'll ask you before we end the show, what is your opinion on why this matters to us in contemporary times? People ask me that a lot. Why does it matter? It's just the past. Well, to you, Brad, why does all of this matter? Well, it's esoteric history. It has been edited and kept from us to know our real past. Because if you don't know your past, then you really don't know your future. And that means the present can be manipulated in such a way. So we, we all, we talk about, I write my books and you're on your show and your books too, about this alternative narrative, about changing the reality, uh, the way that it wants to be structured and having high tech civilizations on this planet and very sophisticated native American cultures, uh, goes against the whole notion of manifest destiny. Just go West young man. And, if those Indians are in your way, just shoot them because it's our land now. So it was a justification for the sins of the colonists and the others who really just destroyed many of these high cultures in the Americas and elsewhere around the world. You know, there's also an irony there real quick, too, because the it's re- reported, it, it seems to be more and more confirmed every year that the Templars, or at least... Uh, people associated with the Templars made it to the Americas, knowing where the Americas were long before uh, Columbus, like in the 1300s, like Henry Sinclair and and those people. And uh, they actually married and had uh, trade and relationships with the native people. And this was a period of, let's call it American history, if you will, where Europeans actually had uh, good relationships with natives. There are actually a lot of native tribes, I think, that still have like some of those European genes, the blonde hair or the blue eyes that are sort of mixed in. Um, so that's like, that's another piece of history that is kind of left out. Uh, the Templars, including the Vikings. Yeah. yeah. Including the Vikings too. Yeah. Another show, Ryan, boy, we could get into this real deep. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly could. Brad Olson, my good friend, we've known each other a very, very long time beyond esoteric, modern esoteric, future esoteric, sacred places all over the world. All of his books, where can listeners find your stuff, Brad? Yeah, you want to know more about me and what I'm doing and some of the conferences I'm speaking at, you can go to bradolson.com. That's uh, B-R-A-D-O-L-S-E-N.com. And then my books and other authors can be found at cccpublishing.com. That's three C's and publishing one word.com. And if you order a book uh, over the CCC Publishing website, that goes through my office and I can sign copies for people. Excellent. I appreciate you coming on the show and I hope everybody enjoyed it. And if they haven't gotten a copy of one of your books, I highly recommend it. Uh, Brad's books are jam packed with information. Thank you so much, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me on Ryan. Really enjoyed talking to you. You got it. Maybe I'll see you up there in Sedona in a couple of weeks at that conference. Sounds good, buddy. All right. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. All right. There goes Brad Olson. I'm Ryan Gable. This is the secret teachings. Check out Brad's work. Check out my work, my book, Occult Arcana, or The Technological Elixir, or Liberty Shrugged. 
www.thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can buy the books. You get a digital copy when you buy a physical copy as well. And we are doing our fundraiser for Contact in the Desert. Trying to raise $500. We'll cut the fundraiser off once we reach that mark. Check out our post on Facebook or message me if you have any questions. Just to cover the expenses to attend the conference and cover it for the secret teachings. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Stay safe, stay informed, stay healthy. We'll talk to you on the next broadcast.